Okay, good evening everyone. Broadcasting live, September 9th, 2015. Today we have a rather longish quote. Maybe let's take turns. Want to read the first paragraph? Sure. Once while Venerable Ananda was dwelling near Kosambi in Gosita Park, Badaji approached him and Ananda asked him, Good Badaji, what is the highest of sights, the highest of sounds, the highest of joys, the highest of conscious states, the highest state of being? There is Brahma who is all powerful. None are more powerful, all seeing with great power and dominion. To see Brahma is the highest of sights. There are the gods of radiant splendor in whom joy flows and overflow, and who utter a cry of joy, O oh joy. To hear this is the highest of sounds. There are the all lustrous gods who feel joy but who rejoice in silence, and this is the highest of joys. There are the gods who go to the sphere of nothingness, and this is the highest of conscious states. Then there are the gods who go to the sphere of neither consciousness nor unconsciousness, and this is the highest state of being. Then Ananda replied, But Badaji, what you say is just the talk of the common crowd. Listen, pay attention, and I will speak. If while one looks, the defilements are destroyed, this is the highest of sights. If while one listens, the defilements are destroyed, this is the highest of sounds. If while one rejoices, the defilements are destroyed, this is the highest of joy. If while one is conscious, the defilements are destroyed, this is the highest of conscious states. And if while one is, and if while one is, the defilements are destroyed, this is the highest state of being. Okay, surely it's not too small that you have to post them in the chat. Is it really that's is it really still too small? Brooklyn. Well this um today we were out in the sun. I have a red hand to prove it. And we met a lot of people interested in Buddhism, met some Buddhists, even spoke Thai to one fellow. And I spoke Sinhalese to another man from Alberta. That was interesting. Um, but I'm at the very end, just as we were getting ready to pack up, this Christian pastor came up and started debating. And uh, his contention was that without God, you can't talk about good and evil. You can't talk about, you can't give meaning to things because it's all subjective. Everyone has their own meaning. Which means that if you believe uh, pigs can fly, then pigs can fly. I mean, it's a bit ridiculous because there are obviously laws of nature that don't require a god 
no obviously you know there's no obvious reason to believe they require a god to exist things are the way they are but there was a question about happiness and suffering how can you how can you understand happiness i mean he was really reaching i thought it was it's hard to argue with these people and that's why i say don't argue with them but it was the end of the day and i didn't wasn't really interested in learning about christianity so instead i started arguing bad idea probably um but this with this this quote reminds me of is people's fixation on the highest fixation on something divine the the awe that people are in ordinary people right we call them putujana putujana Huh. It doesn't use the word putujana, it uses bahuna janena, sametiko idang ayasmato padajisa. What you say is the the knowledge or the understanding of I don't quite get that but anyway it's something to do with how it's the, as he says just the talk of the common crowd talk I'm not sure if it's talk so common people Hmm. What do we mean by common people? For those who I think haven't haven't gone to the extent of really understanding the building blocks of reality, so it's a it's kind of laziness to appeal to higher beings because it's easy and you don't have to go in depth. You can at some point just say I believe you have to because it doesn't follow logically based on empirical evidence I mean not not on scrutiny under scrutiny but it's this is an interesting argument if, if you were asked what is the highest sound well, if you'd heard the sound of the all lustrous gods, uh, oh no, wait, the sound, uh, the Brahma, right? No, the highest sight, the gods of radiant splendor who utter a cry of joy, oh joy. If you'd heard it, you'd have a hard time disagreeing with this guy, I think. If you'd ever seen Brahma, you'd have a hard time disagreeing that Brahma was the greatest of sights. <laughs> 
I don't know who was, I think Buddhists would argue that the Buddha had a greater splendor. This is traditional Buddhists. Modern Buddhists would say the Buddha just looked like an ordinary monk because there's actually some indication that he looked like an ordinary monk. So maybe Brahma looked more splendiferous or splend splendorous. But Ananda cuts right through this. It's quite impressive, actually. It's not how we normally see Ananda. And Ananda's normally the one making the mistakes. Or when he does teach, it's rather populist and wise. But this is the sort of thing we'd expect from the Buddha. It's quite, quite impressive, I think. For him to deny that and deny any any meaning in in what Bhattaji has said. And he says something very powerful here. That it's not actually the sound that has any benefit to it. But if that sound that sight, right? That sight or that sound, that joy, that state, whatever that state may be. If that leads you to enlightenment, then there's, there can be no greater experience. I mean, except for the actual enlightenment itself that comes from it. But there couldn't be no greater sight. It's really the only meaning that Buddhists describe to reality. You know, there's no purpose to anything. Seeing Brahma holds no purpose. Listening to these gods of these angels of whatever they are, radiant splendor. Abhasara, the Abhasara, Abhasara's radiance. To see them, Yo dang sadang sunati idang sabonanang agang. Whoever hears that, that sound, that is the highest sabana, the highest hearing, the height of hearing. There's no purpose to it, no meaning, no benefit. So there's no good. You can't realist. You can't mm, truthfully say it's the highest sound. It's no higher than hearing someone fart or burp. Not in the scheme of things. So then you say, well, Buddhism holds no meaning or no purpose. But we do. We do acknowledge one meaning and purpose. Is it special in the sense that it frees you from sights and sounds and smells and tastes? Frees you from anything that might give lead you to give rise to the question, what's the purpose of that? So once you're free from all that, you could say you've found ultimate purpose. I mean, it's just mean, it's just words, but there's something special to it. And that's, I mean, that's such powerful meditative advice that sound should just be sound, sight should just be sight. But it's not, it's not the quality or the nature of the sound. It's 
how you behave in regards to it. Does it lead you to wisdom or does it lead you to delusion, attachment, ignorance? So if, the, if listening to these gods or seeing Brahma leads you to give rise to wrong view, like, oh, he's the great Brahma and he's God and he's, he's our creator, yada, 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 then it's a very bad thing to see in that case. That seeing was in no, by no means useful or beneficial or high. So thank you, Ananda, Sadhu. So awesome that we have these teachings. I wish I had pictures for you all from today. We didn't take any pictures. I tried to get them to take pictures. We almost had it. Was the guy, the Eric, was about to snap a picture, and then someone came to the table and he put his camera down and started talking to them, and then we forgot about it. We ended up taking down everything without any pictures. But it was neat talking to people. A lot of interested people. You know, as soon as you bring up the word, I think if we had been more proactive, like the guys next to us, we were smudged, smashed, smushed in between the Korean Catholic or the Korean Christians Association and somebody called Life, I think, Life Ministry or something. They're on on campus. They're surrounded by Christians. Across the across the way from us were the Muslims. The Hindus were over here. The Hindus were nice. One of the guys, the Hindu guys came up to us and signed up, I think. He's interested in meditation. And I said, yeah, I'd like to sign up for your club as well. I was saying, it'd be neat to see what the Hindus are up to. I mean, not exactly, but sort of. You know, talk Sanskrit and stuff. But... Uh, Yeah, so and they were all proactive. Uh, the, 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 these guys on our right, they were really active, and they were sometimes standing in front of our table, but that was okay. A lot of them. They were nice. They gave me a bottle of water, so you got to love people who are kind. Um, but uh, you know, if we if we had been like saying stuff like "Hey, meditation," and then <laughs> interested in meditation. Just didn't seem very Buddhist to do that sort of thing. I think that probably impresses people that we weren't proactive. But it's interesting, you know, having a Buddhist club and standing there as a monk and thinking, what am I doing here again? <laughs> it was great, you know, it was great to meet people and talk and great to see such interest. So we've got 98 people signed up. And. Uh, Hopefully they'll all come, some of them will come on the 20th. Some of them were Buddhists. There were Sri Lankans and um, some people who I didn't know. One Vietnamese, I mean, mostly Canadians, but with background to the extent that they called themselves Buddhists. There were people who came up and said, oh, I'm, we're Buddhist, I'm Buddhist. Then there were Western people, one guy who practices Vipassana, a few people who practice meditation, people of all, you know, of all walks of life. Really have a really have a diverse campus. I grew up. I grew up uh, in northern Ontario, where everybody's like white, like me. We had like one black guy at our at our school. I don't know how how whether he had a hard time or not, but uh, it's awesome to 
See, I didn't even think McMaster was this multicultural before, but it's just every type of person. So Canada's kind of cool that way, I think. We're, uh, so we've got good potential. Anyway, enough about all that. I think enough about the quote. It has a point, simple point. It's an awesome point. But now we've made the point. Do you have any questions? We do. While meditating today, I felt extremely happy. Might happiness be a distraction as well as sadness? Absolutely. You know, happiness is a bigger distraction because you never ask, what am I going to do? What should I do? When you feel happy, you don't say, oh my gosh, what should I do? I'm happy. When you feel sad, you tend to question and wonder what, what the cure is and how to be free from it. So at least you're posing the question. With happiness, it's easy to become complacent and think, oh, well, this is nice. This must be what I'm supposed to do because I feel happy. I must be doing something right. I mean, actually, sure, you could argue that you are you did something right and that's what led you to be happy. But being happy in and of itself is not doing anything right. Happiness doesn't lead to happiness. So you have to be extra vigil, vigilant and acknowledge happy. happy. But it's awesome. It's awesome that you can be real happy. But I read my latest chapter. Happiness is, is an upakilesa. Could people who invade a foreign land be reborn as descendants of the invaded? Anybody can be born as anybody, so don't you don't have to speculate too much. It's possible to be born anywhere. You know, it's very complicated where you're going to be born. It's very much based on your mind right before you die and all sorts of factors involved. But you but that being said, that's all just fluff really, because the point that you're making is pretty awesome. Rich people who are stingy will probably end up being the poor people. People who keep slaves will probably end up becoming the slaves. Invaders uh, will will end up being born as the people who are subjugated. You know. But you know, there's another there's another aspect there of just familiarity, right? So the imperialists. When they invaded the lands, they become familiar with. Often they would take as slaves these uh, the African people or the Asian people, the Indian people, Sri Lankan, you know, just the whole world, South American people, Central American, North American First Nations people. Um, and when they start to become more familiar with them, then for sure their minds will and also because of the cruelty and the intensity of that. I mean, actually, the intensity of the slave owners and all that, and even rich people who are supremely stingy, they're not going to be born as a human, not likely. They're more likely to be born in hell. But even when they come out of hell, the residue is most likely to... You know, you never get off the hook. That's what, what's awesome about Buddhism. If you believe in this concept of karma, it's really pretty awesome. I mean, you don't ever have to feel... I mean, it's actually scary, but... It relieves you of all of this. Why do people get away scot-free and how dare they and etc. etc. It turns everything around and you feel so sorry for those people. 
and you look at it and you just think, oh, I can't imagine you know, what that person is going to have to go through based on those evil deeds. You know, just the horror of being that person and having having their future awaiting them. You feel more sorry for the person who's doing the evil deeds. I was kind of twisted, really. Maybe not more sorry, but but in a, in a sense, because pain and suffering are not evil, you know? They're not a cause for concern, really. I mean, not, to the, not in the same way that evil is. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, it's not that pain is a good thing or that you know, it's harmless when someone gets tortured or raped or murdered. But the person doing it is the one who's, you know, they'll receive it a hundred times or a thousand times over. You know? And you can imagine these people who torture and rape others. The idea is that then they then they have to go through it like thousands of times. So you know, so who should you feel more sorry for, really? Maybe not sorry for exactly, but more cringeworthy is the act, the evil act. Anyway, Robin, did you were you gonna try to say something and I didn't? Let you? No, no, it's just interesting. Can you talk about sukha and the different kinds of sukha? What joy is wholesome and what joy isn't? Joy in and of itself isn't wholesome or unwholesome. Joy is a vedana, and vedana is, is ethically neutral. A joyful feeling, somanasa. But somanasa can be associated with either greed, lobha, or uh, kusala, you know, any of the any kind of kusala. There are four, twelve, I think, kusala minds that are associated with somanasa, joy. So basically wholesomeness. If you do a good deed, you can feel happy about it. You can also feel neutral about it. But at the time when you're doing wholesomeness, at the time when you're performing wholesomeness or receiving the consequences of wholesome act, acts, uh, those are wholesome joy. You can experience wholesome, experience joy associated with the wholesomeness. But the joy itself is neutral. And that's important from a meditative point of view, to realize that joy is not good or bad. It's just neutral. So there's two kinds of joy. There's I mean, different kinds of sukha. I mean, it's a good question, and there are many ways of, of enumerating, categorizing. First of all, there's physical physical happiness, which is like bodily pleasure. Uh, then there is mental pleasure, mental happiness, which is the joy, as I said, two types. But that's somanasa, that's joy. It's mental happiness. Then there's uh, amisasukha, happiness that takes an object, something makes you happy, versus niramisasukha, happiness that is free from an object, happiness that springs up. Uh, in the mind irrespective of the, the object there's uh, lok lokya sukha happiness that is mundane so that's all these kind of sukhas that we've been talking about and then there's lokuttara sukha which is actually free from vedana it's not a vedana it's not a feeling it's happiness that is peace that is freedom 
It's the high, that's the highest happiness. In fact, Buddha said that's the only happiness. Nati santi parang sukang. There's no happiness but peace, or other than peace. So all those other types of happiness in the end are not really considered happiness. And I had this argument once. People were saying, you know, that's all dukkha. Jhanas are dukkha. Any kind of wholesome is is all dukkha. It's all the truth of suffering. And I said, yeah, but... I mean, I was just arguing because people get so pedantic about these things. Sure, it's correct. It's the truth of suffering. But, you know, you don't get very far saying that. It is happiness. And Buddha recognized it. And he recognized the disadvantages and the drawbacks of all other kinds of happiness, but Nibbana. The Buddha taught others to free themselves, but isn't the act of teaching not attachment? No, no, acts are not attachment. Acts are also ethically neutral. It's the mind state behind the act. If you want to teach, then yeah, wanting is... And greed or attachment but if someone invites you to teach then quite often it's the path of least resistance to teach them and be life becomes more difficult more complicated when you refuse because then they wonder why and then they go and criticize you to others and suddenly you're lynched and driven out of town and you know life becomes difficult it's much it's the proper act it's it's the most harmonious, clear, clean thing to do, to teach. We're not stones. We don't just, you know, human beings are, we have life. And so an arahant behaves naturally. Part of that is not always, but usually teaching. And the Buddha had so much of this, um, this momentum built up from so many lifetimes of teaching and preparing to teach that it would have been shocking if he didn't teach you know just to stop all of that momentum what was natural but he still it was only once he was asked he only taught when he was asked if one is dying from hunger or disease etc without having experienced nibbana becoming sotapanna should one practice satipatthana vipassana until the last minute or try to develop the first jhana if one is not? Definitely, satipatthana vipassana. First of all, because it's hard to enter into the first jhana when you're dying of hunger or disease. It's caused some monks to kill themselves because they couldn't enter into the jhanas like they usually did. But second of all, because the practicing the jhana if you could manage to do it would only lead you to the brahma realm so it's not you know, that's that's if you can manage to hold on to the concentration at the last moment of, at the moment of death but with satipatthana vipassana um, doesn't matter where you're reborn i mean your mind is clear you're present it puts you very much in line with the Buddha's teaching, and close to the Buddha's asana, you know, just ready. If you if you practice Satipatthana Vipassana at the moment of death, you know where you're going to be born in the next life is going to be the purest, most clear, most closest to Buddhists and Buddhism that you could hope for. 
because it's clarity of mind. The jhanas are not clarity of mind, not in the same way. I mean, they are clarity of mind, but not based on wisdom. Definitely the jhanas are inferior in this case. I mean, the jhanas are always inferior to, to Vipassana. I mean, I guess the only problem is if you're not... It depends what stage you're at. You know, if, if suppose you came to Buddhism today knowing nothing about meditation or, or Buddhism, and then you realized you were dying, right? You realized you were dying of hunger or thirst or dying of disease. What should you do? It's a more, more interesting question, I suppose, because you're not proficient at anything. I still wouldn't argue that. I think in this case, definitely, for both the same, for both those reasons, it doesn't really change. You should still work hard. I mean, actually, even more so if you were a newcomer. Like, if you had training in jhanas, it might be a harder question to ask, to answer. But if you have no training, that's the one thing we say about Satipatthana Vipassana, without the jhanas, is that it's quicker. You know, it's more more streamlined. And so it's something that you can see results quicker. Uh, Goenka talks about this in the Goenka tradition. He said that he had some Tibetan, apparently this is what I've heard, he had some Tibetan monks were sent to him. And in three days they were seeing lights and visions and colors and all sorts of awesome magical things. And they were shocked because they had been practicing for years. They had got they had gotten these things before, but usually it took them uh, months, if not years, to have the same states. And in three days they got this. And I you know, definitely can vouch for that. I've seen people come to meditate and we're just amazed at how quickly, as compared to other techniques, and how quickly they were able to gain progress. It's really quite profound when you do an intensive course. Even in just a week, you can really shake things up. Is avoiding psychoactive substances not simply ignoring the various states of consciousness, or isn't that the point? You want me to say it? No, you want me to say it? Go ahead, do drugs. Yes, meditate and do drugs. That's awesome. I'm not going to say it. I just said it. Psychoactive drugs. Right. Um, I mean, an interesting argument. There are lots of similar arguments like that. If you refrain from X, aren't you just avoiding part of reality? And if you want to understand all of reality, don't you need to do everything? It's actually the argument, I think, posed in, well, I think it's part of the argument of Siddhartha, right? This book by Herman Hess, someone brought it up today. He was asking me if I'd read Siddhartha, and we were discussing the merits of the book. I read it many, many years ago, like when I was 14, 15, 16, I don't remember. Um... But no, it's 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 Buddhism doesn't hold such an idea that you have to. Buddhism uh, argues against the idea that you need to know everything. You could argue that a Buddha might have to do lots and lots of different things, but even still, what's most important is to understand the building blocks of reality. If you if you have a a Lego structure, 
you don't have to understand all the how this fits together and that because you know how the building blocks are the, how legos fit together you understand the concept you can build the house based on very simple concepts but i don't know they don't have can't follow the lego met metaphor but if you're drunk if you're on drugs you can't understand the building blocks to reality so all those minds that you're like suppose let's take an easier example because drugs as i've said you have to take them individually they all do different things but alcohol um you say well you have to get drunk otherwise you can't understand what it's like to be drunk a drunk person doesn't understand what it's like to be drunk they don't have a clue what's going on you know they're the more you drink the less uh aware and observant they are of what's going on because your 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 brain shuts down your mind has very difficult time functioning whereas a person who understands reality can look at a drunk person and say i know i can see what's going on with that person if the person has a clear knowledge of the building blocks of reality they can understand what it means to be drunk they can understand people no matter what their state they can understand people who are on drugs you can see just talking to a person listening to them you can feel the dissonance what's wrong with them a person that's why i say a person who's on medication you can tell there's something different about them if you've been practicing meditation if you've been teaching meditation especially this is why i say meditate medication it's um, it's hard to accept that people could could finish a course on medication because you can tell they're stuck um, psychoactive drugs don't get me started i've done them all not all of them i've done many of them they make it difficult they 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 twist things and they're artificial because they're artificial they're they're not able the state that you're in is not a good one for understanding reality because it's artificial it's based on a specific a very specific set of chemical um, reactions or i guess you could argue that even on alcohol you could be one could be mindful i don't know it's an interesting argument because it's just physical right so couldn't the mind still be mindful i've never tried actually seems i mean i know that for most people that's a ridiculous uh, suggestion but for an arahant if an arahant or a buddha buddha couldn't but say an arahant were to drink alcohol what would be the result it's an interesting question Can you talk a little bit more in depth about what is meant by the defilements? The defilements are just states of mind that are karmically potent in a negative way. They will have have negative consequences that lead to further suffering. So greed, anger, and delusion. The, ba the three basic ones are loba, dosa, and moha. Greed, anger, and delusion. These three things have necessary negative consequences, no matter what there's no getting away getting around them i mean there is negating them so it's possible that they can be cancelled out by other factors but they themselves will never have a positive result and they themselves can't help but contribute to your pot of karma in a negative way today we can read the teachings of many teachers why should we trust the buddhist teaching how do we know it to be the truth 
Well, today you would look at a teacher who's teaching the Buddha's teaching and you would say, wow, that person knows what they're talking about. You might practice their teachings and say, wow, this teaching is beneficial. And you might hear that teacher talking about the Buddha and realizing that they have respect and faith in the Buddha. And you say, well, this person who I respect respects the Buddha. So it makes sense for me to respect the Buddha. Um, but, but sorry, just specifically for following the teachings, you would only follow them if you thought they made sense and if the people teaching them seem to be reasonable people and have uh, some sort of, some insight into reality. And then when you put them into practice and understood that they realized that they do have a true and real benefit, then you would, well, you would continue or you would further your practice. If they didn't, then you would stop. Could you speak about some of the stages of mental or spiritual development one goes through when practicing the tradition of meditation you teach? Um, I've started to do this in my book, the second book. So I'd recommend you read the second book on how to meditate. That's probably better than me trying to go through it here because it's a bit lengthy. I mean, the book doesn't go into great detail, but... Basically, you you first you start to understand the building blocks, right? You you have to get the right frame of reference. So that's understanding body and mind, understanding what's really what reality is really made of from a Buddhist point of view. You have to get your shift your paradigm away from space time, four dimensions, to look at reality from a individual point of view like experience seeing hearing smelling tasting feeling and thinking reality is based on that once you do that then the practice starts and basically you come to understand that the things that you cling to are not worth clinging to the things that you run away from are not worth running away from it's not worth your time or your energy to cling to these things why because they're impermanent suffering and non-self unstable unsatisfying uncontrollable and so you let go of things and when you let go you're free when you're free you say i'm free that's how it's described in your eyes is there any truth to things like reiki crystal powers and energy healing or is it all a scam would being involved in such things be harmful to meditation practice those are two different questions i think so I don't think it's all a scam. Um, I think probably some of it is a scam and some of it is placebo and some of it is um, confirmation bias, that kind of thing, you know. But I bet some of it has some truth to it. I bet there's something to Reiki that some people do. You know, there's some energy. I'm not sure, actually, you know. I mean, scientists seem to have done very well disproving this stuff. But I guess I don't know. But more pertinent is the second question because yeah it's all nonsense forget about it it's not meditation it's not useful in meditation it's not boy i'm probably going to get in trouble for this one right <laughs> but, but no i have to go on record as saying that it's not useful for meditation even reiki no healing of any sort physical healing once you get caught up in worrying about the body worrying about physical problems I guess the best you could say about it is if it works, if it does heal you, then it's fine.
functionally useful to get you back in a position where you can function right, as a human being. So it's mundane, it has mundane benefits that we would recognize and say, well, that's good because if you get back into shape, then your meditation goes better. But to, you know, the problem is people get attached to these things, you know. Any little thing comes up, oh, rake, time for Reiki, time for energy crystals, and so on. But if there was some way to, you know, if you were out of balance, or like if Reiki could heal your broken leg or something like that, well, then you could walk again. I mean, examples like that are pretty reasonable, I think. But still, you know, ultimately much better to focus on insight. And then they can get in the way if you if your meditation incorporates these things, as you start getting on getting the wrong idea of what is and what isn't the path. A very important insight: purification by knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path. What's the proper translation of dukkha? Tanisaro translates it as stress. Is this accurate? Well, dukkha is the opposite of sukha. So if you translate dukkha as stress, what are you going to translate the opposite? What's the opposite of stress? Unstress? Lack Eustress. of stress? Eustress is a kind of stress, actually. But yeah, you could argue that. Uh, so I don't like it as a translation. I mean, people use it, but it's not really what it means. It's not what it means. Because when your body, when you have pain in the body, that's called dukkha. Dukkha kaya vedana, or yeah, something like that. Dukkha kaya vinyana, or something. No, dukkha vedana. Hmm. So, is that the mean the body is stressed? Yeah, you can twist it that way, but that's not what the word means. The word means suffering or pain. So, sukha can mean happiness or it can mean pleasure. I would say those are the very basic translations. Dukkha means. Uh, pain or displeasure or unhappiness. No, not displeasure. Pain or unhappiness. Sukha means pleasure or happiness. And I guess that's whether it's physical or mental. If it's mental, it's often called somanasa and domanasa instead of dukkha and sukha. But it's also often called dukkha and sukha, even if it's mental. Don't go by Tanisaro's translations. I'm sorry to say, he's, an, he's a great monk, knows a lot about the Vinaya, but he's got his own ideas about translation. I'm not the only one to say that. I shouldn't say that on public. I'm sorry. I don't mean to attack him. But if you want my opinion, gets, there's, there's really good standard translations. Bhikkhu Bodhi, I think we, many people agree that he's just awesome in his translations. He's really put some thought. And, you know, it's like there's many different teachers, like Tanisaro is one. They, they've come up with their own ideas, uh, their own ways of translating things, but they're not very standard and they haven't taken the middle of the road path. You know, it's not something that we can all sort of be happy with. Some people are very happy with it, but many people are not very happy with it. So with, with Bhikkhu Bodhi, he's our, you know, Monks, monk, or what do you say? Buddhists, Buddhist. He's uh, he's the middle of the road kind of guy, which is important. You know, some people might like it, not like it, because it's not radical enough or it's not precise enough. But he's very precise and he's pretty awesome. So I recommend his translations, and I'm pretty sure he calls it suffering. 
I've heard dukkha translated as stress and also disease, not disease, but unease, disease. And I wondered if it was, you know, maybe to make it more palatable because for people that aren't accustomed to it, you know, to hear suffering, it just sounds depressing. But when you say stress or disease, that's something people can relate to and they wouldn't protest it. I mean, so. that's a that's a complaint, but is it really true? I mean, do people, I think when people don't understand, like I think I remember when I was a teenager, I wrote a paper on Buddhism. I wasn't Buddhist, but it's funny. I wrote this paper on Buddhism and I, try, I was looking for criticism, so I picked that out and I said, yeah, they're big on suffering. But I didn't understand and I didn't, wasn't turned off by it. I was just looking for something to criticize because you know, I guess criticism sells. It's my bad karma. That's why I have to teach Buddhism now. Um, it's just hard to describe suffering to people who feel pretty happy, you know, people who haven't studied this and haven't really thought about it. And sure. they, they protest, no, I'm not suffering, I'm doing great, you know. You, it's you hard Buddhist to teach Buddhism to such people, I think, yeah. because Buddhism is about, un, you know, you have to understand that there's a problem. You have to be stirred, you have to be moved in order to take action. People who have good good lives are it's hard to move them. Sometimes they can be moved, but I think they're moved by the same, you know, if they get it. If you talk about suffering and they don't get it, then that's not a person I would argue that you should be teaching Buddhism to. They don't get suffering. Because it is. We're talking about suffering. Really, I think it's an awesome translation. Because that's really it. Do you suffer? Does your life have any suffering in it? Well, that's what Buddhism is all about. We can help you with that. Yeah, the only argument is when people say, well, suffering is good and useful and so on. Yeah. But there's, I think there's denial too, you know, with, with people who haven't considered this, just denial. Oh, no, I if don't suffer. And that, that's a sign that they're, they're not a good candidate. Yeah. Because remember, we're not looking for converts. You know, today I was quite conscious of this fact. Everybody around us was like, hey, sign up, free gum, free chocolate bars. They were actually giving out candy. I mean, not to diss them or anything. Nice, they were nice people. But that's their religion. It's about, you know, anything to get people because the gum had like stickers on it, I think, with their, you know, their website and stuff. But we're not like that. So it was more like just stand there because maybe someone is looking for us. And if they're looking for us, they'll find us. And that's how it happened, you know. The people who came up were, 90% of them were sure this is where they wanted to be. So some people, I started after a while, if someone looked at it and paused for a while, I would say, are you interested in meditation and Buddhism? Yeah, I would say, interested in meditation and Buddhism? And maybe they just keep walking. But usually when they heard meditation, it was interesting. But most people were like, yes. And they just sign up. Some people didn't even talk to us. They just walked up and... We had this computer thing set up, and um, they just signed up. So, I mean, that's enough, really. I mean, once you've got those people, what are you doing looking for more? And if you don't have those people, why are you looking for more anyway? Right? Why are we looking? I think. So, I, I don't, I'm not convinced. Because suffering to me just hits straight to the point. Yes, I, I suffer. And uh, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm, I'm practicing Buddhism, because I see that. 
I wouldn't suggest that people are out, you know, trying to, to recruit the masses, but with your family members, with people you really care about and you're trying to, and they're asking you what you see in Buddhism, what you see in meditation, and you're trying to explain it, suffering is hard to explain because again, there's, for people who haven't considered it, they may just be in denial, but stress is, it's a little more understandable, I would say, to people who haven't considered it. Well, when you have to deal, when you have to live in a situation where you're close to people who are not like you, uh, then for sure, but that's just a problem with your situation. You have to finesse things and water things down, but that doesn't mean it's an honest translation. You're finessing things. You're fudging it because of your situation. I mean, that's what a family is. I i don't live with my family anymore, and that's part of the reason I there were... were fairly close, but not that close, you know, living with them would not be possible because we don't see eye to eye on these things. I mean, how many monks in the Buddhist time were not able to convince their parents that they were, had to leave behind their families because of this? But, you know, so if you have to, you have to. It doesn't mean that stress is the proper translation. But, but you, that's what you said. You said it's for, to ease, to, to, ease it on people. But I think, yes, in the case where you have to, but no, not in the case where you say, well, I'm going to say stress all the time because that's just going to be easier for people to understand. You're not honest. You know, if that's how you're presenting Buddhism to, as a teacher, sorry, I don't mean to attack, but attack Tanisaro or anyone, but um, it's not how I would do it. I would cut straight to the core and if they're inter if they're not interested, Hey, that's cool. Talked to one guy today. It was interesting. Um, he said, "How did it start?" He said, "What? Uh, what's the one? Can you give me one thing that Buddhists believe?" And I said, "Well, Buddhists don't really believe anything." Or, or no, I said, "No, I didn't say that." I said, "Buddhism's not really about belief. It's more about understanding." I mean, Buddhist makes Buddhism makes certain claims, but we claim that our claims are verifiable. And he said, well, what's one claim What's one claim that Buddhism makes? And I have to think you know, right away, what's a good claim? Uh, so I gave the, 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 the most, most obvious one. I said uh, that suffering is caused by uh, our attachments or by clinging or something. And if we're able to let go, then you don't suffer. And he said, oh, well, that makes sense. And so he signed up. Yeah, I mean, I was suffering. I, I brought suffering up, and he didn't cringe or say, oh, suffering. You know, no one does. We really don't, because we have suffering. Honest people have suffering. It's the people. It's more, I hear this. I see people say, but okay, so family members, I, I'll go for that. But it's mostly like that. It's people who are looking to criticize. They don't really want you to be Buddhist. They wish you were like them. Of a Christian family, they wish you were Christian. So when you come to them with Buddhism, gee, you're 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 not talking to people who are interested in Buddhism. If they're interested and open-minded, it's not hard sell. Suffering is not a hard sell. You know, anyone who's honest. I agree. <laughs> so I didn't mean to talk over you. That's okay. So. Bhante, can quality of mind be less defiled or can IQ be more thorough through good karma and rebirth? Yes. 
Can you talk about guiding the mind in the proper way, like guiding the mind versus forcing the mind? Well, it's all about observing, even your state of mind, like observing that you're not mindful, observing that you are, um, observing even that you're forcing the mind, observing that your mind is not acting the way you want it to act. Uh, it's a very tricky thing, you know, it's like trying to catch a fish. It very easily slips out of your hands. So, you know, there's no, if you have the right principle, like that's a good principle to have, not forcing just, um, what is the word you say? Guiding. No, it's not even guiding exactly, because guiding, I would say you're still going to have trouble with that one if your principle is guiding. Um, think observing. And really just observing again and again. No matter how much you want to guide, how much you want to control, just observe and observe when you want to guide, observe when you want to control. And just keep observing. And then when you get frustrated because you're like, what's going on? This is useless. You know, what good is this? What good is it just to watch? I'm not getting anywhere. Well, then observe that. Observe the frustration with this stupid meditation teacher that I'm teaching, meditation teaching that I've given you to just do nothing, right? Observe that when you don't like it. And you'll become honest. You'll become, it's like, it's a lot like the karate kid where he'd do it so much and he thinks, this is useless. He trains his body by painting the fence. The old karate kid, not the new one. There's a new one I heard. Don't know what it, don't know what it's, what it was about. Uh, and they, they wax on, wax off. So doing these things, and he gets frustrated after a while, thinking that he's just performing manual slave labor. And then uh, Mr. Miyagi, is that his name? He, he shows him how he's actually trained himself. So it'll be a lot like that. You'll you'll realize that you really gained something from this nothingness. From this. Anyway, I hope that's useful. I have problems with nightmares. Can I use meditation to get rid of them? Yeah, yeah. If you meditate more, you'll have fewer nightmares. It might take a while. I mean, sometimes it's stuff. The meditation doesn't doesn't. You know, did make things disappear. It it slowly works them out. So sometimes that means a big bubble of whatever has to come up. You know, the brain is set in its ways, and you could still have nightmares years later. But for sure, the meditation will slowly work to ease them. And even slowly, you know, it 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 does a lot of work quickly. But over the long term, you might still have some, but very quickly you should get some results especially for things like nightmares I have problems with meditation regularly should I try meditating on death and if so, how? yeah, meditation on death that's, uh, think about how you have to die You know, think about how you're going to die you, know, there's, you can just you can actually just say to yourself, death, death, death. And just repeat that to yourself. It's quite disturbing, I think. 
So I shouldn't laugh. It is, you know, it's a valid meditation practice. It just sounds kind of funny. We read that in Visuddhimagga. We read in Visuddhimagga that that's yeah. what you do. You say, um, you know, practicing regularly, it's a difficult thing. You know, sometimes you just eventually get to the point where you want to meditate daily. You know, it, it may take you time to want to do it. The best way to want to do it is come and do an uh, intensive course. Find a place to do an intensive course because it changes the foundation. You see, you're you're trying to build on a shaky foundation. You're, you're, you're trying to work at the same time that the foundation is moving, meaning you're living your life and then you're trying to fix the problem. It's like trying to fix a pipe while the water is on. You should turn the water off first. So doing a meditation course... It, it fixes everything, and it, it gets everything stable, so you can build on that. It's much easier to have a regular practice. But that being said, it just has to come to you. You have to be patient and keep trying. With all things, keep trying. That's the wonderful thing about Buddhism. It's never too late. You have eternity. It's quite relieving, actually. You have eternity to do this. I probably shouldn't say this because you're already lazy, right? But you can do it anytime. Sometimes laziness comes from pushing yourself. You push and push, and it's so stressful that you think, I can't do it, I'm a failure. I just won't even try. But if you know you have eternity, then you're like, okay, well, how am I going to spend my eternity? Maybe I'll try and keep trying, you know? If, if The great thing about eternity is if you have eternity then no effort is too small. And I think it's encouraging. I don't know. Maybe it's... I don't think it leads to complacency. To understand eternity. If you understand eternity, then you're like, well, maybe I should do something. And, but it's honest, you know? It's not like out of fear or, or, or guilt or something. It's honest. This is what I'm going to do. And then it comes from the heart. You know, it's really you have this... Because it's different. Doing it out of fear of death is different from uh, doing it out of real intention and real um, certainty that what you're doing is an awesome thing. It's just an idea. Because, you know, death is considered to be useful, so you shouldn't discard that. Is it wise to refrain from controlled fear stimuli like horror films or morbid internet in images, or does it essentially make no difference? Well, fear is unwholesome, so you're you're you got to weigh the pros and the cons. If it if you're able to um, learn how to not be afraid, learn to be mindful during the horror films or something then yeah, it's, it, it's useful. But if it just reaffirms your fear, then it is unwholesomeness. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between Goenka's Vipassana technique and the Vipassana technique you teach? It's quite different. Uh, they don't do walking is the most obvious difference. But the whole technique is different. They do three days of anapanasati, which is samatha meditation. 
and then they start in on vipassana and their idea of vipassana is to do this body scanning as i understand so they go through the body looking for sankharas it's we've talked about it um i suppose that article is no longer on the internet but we had an interesting discussion on our our q a forum which i think i've taken down now um yeah it's different it's not something i'd really recommend but it does seem to help people it does seem to be a positive meditation practice i just don't i don't really follow that line of thought I just my own little add-on question to that um those courses are are so numerous all over the world you know i seen people like on stack exchange a lot you know kind of suggesting mm -hmm. well go go to that even if it's not really what you want to learn because mm -hmm. it's it's easy to find a place that teaches that and mm -hmm. would you consider going to a place like that to make it harder to eventually move over to a different technique like your own for example if that's what someone was ultimately interested in it seems to actually i mean i wouldn't i would normally say no it's any meditation is good but it does seem that going to people have a hard time with our technique because they get so fixed it creates a high concentration it's hard to be flexible they don't want to feel the, you know, the state of flexibility that that our meditation I mean, they seem to have very strong concentration, and that can be a boon, but it can also be, it feels to us like they're forcing things, and that's hard to overcome. That being said, um, they certainly have strong, they have strong minds coming out of this practice. I mean, to sit still for so long, in and of itself, is built strength. And they are doing some sort of um, contemplation of the body and the feelings so it's not unwholesome unless it's delusion based which i don't really think it is maybe a little but that's maybe a bias of mine i guess that's the thing is we might be concerned that it involves delusion in which case if it, if it does cultivate delusion, then that's problematic for proper meditation. But obviously they don't think it does. And I'm not sure that it does. It's just, I'm suspicious. Is Bhikkhu Bodhi coming on here? I don't have the nerve to invite him, not yet. We need a few interviews under our belt first. I have contacted the Bikuni in the area. I tried calling her, but that didn't work. So now I've tried Facebooking her. Our linguistics professor, she's she's not English native speaker, and she asked us today. Someone mentioned googling, googling as a as a verb, and that was an example of a new word. And she said, "Yeah, you can even say Facebook someone." And she said, "Don't you say that?" And she asked the class, "Isn't that something you can say?" Sorry, I'm getting off track. But um, I don't know. Can you say I Facebooked her? Not really. She didn't reply yet. Well, I think everyone would know what you mean in any case if you said it. Whether it's proper or not is another situation. What if one constantly dislikes the unsatisfactoriness of the world? 
then you would say disliking, disliking. And that would help you overcome it. You should read my booklet. Someone says, Simon says, uh, Simon says, okay. it's not the meditation app, but you have to meditate. You can do it on the website. We've got less than half of us names are green. That's not a good sign. So all of you who haven't done meditation, are you sure you're on the right site? This is a site for meditators. If you want to, if you come here to ask questions, that's okay. But if you're not meditating, I'm going to get fed up and I'm going to stop answering questions. And I'll just say, it's not worth my time. You're not really meditating. So, but if you just happen to not have time or you meditated earlier or something, it only records purposefully. It only remembers your meditation for like three hours or something. I don't remember. So if you meditated before that, it won't. Your your name turns back to orange. But orange does mean not a meditator. Is it okay to send a subway card to the old address or the new address? Um, it's okay. Um, absolutely fine. I don't want to direct uh, or redirect. So if that's your intention, that's cool. But I found I found all the subway cards. I was looking for them in the move and I thought, did I leave them? Did I throw them out? But I found them and there's a whole bunch of them, which is awesome going to last many weeks I think but I've got a lot of them the Tim the Tim Hortons is next door um, no I, this is really something I want to say for two days I went in there to, to get oatmeal uh, with a Tim card and they don't have a scanner so it's really difficult for them to I mean they're having troubles with it and so the woman this morning couldn't figure out how to use it and then the manager came out and uh, to help her and she saw me and she said, oh, we'll just ring it through. Yeah, that doesn't matter. And I'm pretty sure she didn't charge me for it purposefully, uh, which is, you know, I mean, wow, generous. And she said, oh, yeah, he's a regular. You're regular, aren't you, coming in here? I was, saw you come in yesterday. I said, yeah, I just moved down the street. So I do plan to be a bit of a regular there. Uh, and that's just an awesome place, awesome people. And... Uh, I don't have, I've only got a couple of Tim, Tim Hortons cards, so, but I don't, you know, no pressure, no pushing, it's awesome, I mean, the fact that people are giving me food is just awesome, but it is keeping me alive, so if you want me to keep doing this, I do have to be alive to do this, if you want me to be alive, well, I will be going back to Stony Creek on the weekends, and they'll feed me there, but here, here actually, um, uh, people are awesome, you know. One guy on our exec committee, he offered to bring me lunch, and I was kind of taken off guard by it at first. I, you know, it was a new thing to me, the idea of someone going to... I wasn't quite sure what he meant, actually, and I, I, I thought, you know, did he mean that I could give him money to pay for it or something? But So I said no. The point is I said no, and I felt kind of afterwards mm, I should have... You know, he wanted to do that. That was very kind of him. But then another guy gave me a Starbucks card. He just said, hey, do you, do you like Starbucks? And I think it was, I think he was really trying to do, you know, trying to, he was 
really happy about what I did. And so he gave me a Starbucks card. I don't know what it's, I don't know what it, how much or so on. But uh, I said, well, I don't drink the coffee, but I'm sure they have something there that I could, you know, maybe they have breakfast. Anyway, thank you. Blessings to everyone. That's just, they said it couldn't be done, you know. They said, moving to the West, you're not going to be able to do this. So here I am, you know, for free, right? Without using money and without charging for your teachings. There was one woman today. She was awesome. Oh, I've got stories from today. Woman came up to us and she said she was wearing a, what do you call it? Burqa is the head thing? The shawl? Hajib? Habib? Not the full thing, just the head thing. Yeah, it's something like Habib. I think she was Muslim, but it wasn't clear because it was also raining. So she may have just been, she may have been Hindu. Hindus also wear that, some of them, right? Or no? I don't know. Anyway, probably Muslim. But she came and she saw, she, I said, you're interested in meditation? She said, yes. How much is it? And I looked at her and I said, what? You're free. And she said, free? And uh, it was so funny because everything was, she was just ecstatic, really. She couldn't believe that we were, that this was available and that it was free. I said, you we're going to have all these things and, and, and you know, how much does it cost? <laughs> oh, it's all free. And then I said, listen, I have residential courses. Oh, no, then I, yeah, then I said, I do residential courses. And she's thinking, oh, here we go. And uh, where people come and stay with us for 21, stay with me for 21 days. And she said, oh, yeah, how much does that cost? I said, free. And she was, she couldn't believe it. I said, we give you food, we give you lodging and teachings, all free of charge. And I mean, it's heartwarming to be able to, it's unfathomable that that's possible. And yet, it seems possible. And, and then I gave her a booklet and I said, this is free as well. I gave out free booklets. I mean, the other people were doing it. It's not, you know, the other religions, they were giving out chocolate. They are giving out a lot more than we were giving out. But none of them gave out any teachings, I don't think. We gave out booklets on how to meditate. And in the long run, that's a lot more valuable than a chocolate. I get so many insights and epiphanies during meditation and I'm never sure if I should pursue them or observe them and then go back to meditating without exploring the insights mentally. That's awesome that you have epiphanies. That's, that's something that you should experience. It's kind of epiphanies. But they're known. They're not useful in and of themselves. Exploring them, you've, you've missed the moment. The moment was when you had the epiphany. That's all that's required. It's not practice to go over the epiphany to think about it. Once you start thinking about it, you're no longer, it's no longer of any use. It's now becoming ratiocination, whatever you call it, mental thought. So let it go mindfully. If you are curious or interested, that's tanha, that's craving, attachment. You should note wanting, wanting, curious, curious, liking, liking, and just thinking, thinking, and let it go.
What is your view of being born left-handed in a dominantly right-handed world? Probably bad karma, I don't know. <laughs> it's an interesting, interesting idea. I mean, this is all speculation, who knows? Karma is not something you can speculate on. No, it's something, in that case, you probably could. And if you had some mechanism by which you could see people going from one life to the next, you could probably develop a theory as to why people. But for me to say it, I don't know. It'd just be speculation. I didn't even turn on my light. How's that? Is that better? It's actually the same. But I lost the shadow. There was a shadow of my nose right here. Oh, okay. No more shadows. It looked okay. The only the only thing that's a little hard is that red background. You don't Kinda. like the red background. I, you know, I don't know. Maybe people on on the uh, site can weigh in, but to me, the the red background's a little hard. Red is supposed to be hostile. You don't yeah. want red because it's hostile. Yeah. It, it also it, it doesn't it clashes with the orange of the robe. So I don't know. I bet it goes good but, with what was that background thing where you could put a background on now. Oh, <laughs> yes, maybe we'll always have to use that feature, <laughs> put a fake background on you, at least until maybe some volunteers can paint your room at some time. That would be awesome. Yeah, well, probably. When sick, I'm able to note pain during meditation, but nausea is overwhelming. We still have more questions, aren't we, over time? We have already? so many questions. All right, well, they're yeah. going to all have to wait till tomorrow. Okay. Especially because look at the, how few people have actually practiced meditation. Okay. So tomorrow I expect more green. Oh, well, I have more one question. One more question, green or fewer questions. I have one question, but it's an easy question. Right. You have a, an Amazon wish list, um, which some people might like to check out. Did you remember to change your address to the new, to the new no, address? Yet. Um, yeah. I didn't answer that question, whether the old address or the new address. The new address is better. I think, because I'm here five days a week. I'm only at Stony Creek on the weekends. So I will get mail here now. And in the future, I'm going to be here seven days a week. But uh, during the rains, I have to. I'm officially staying in Stony Creek. I'm just here on, you could say, a mission for five days. But I have to go back to my home monastery during the rains. It's just a technicality. Um, but yeah, I'm here most of the time, so the new new address is better. Um, but yeah, Amazon have to just change the address. I mean, send to the other place, I will get it. Anyway, I'm going to stop there. Sorry okay. we didn't get to all the questions. You weren't doing enough meditating. Thank you, Bante. Good night. Thank you, Robin, for your help. Thank you, Thank everyone. You. Have a good night.